When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. It's another bonus episode of Film Spotting, the fourth film, the fourth installment in our Vincent Minnelli Marathon. We're going to discuss the bandwagon here in a moment. And to help us do that, the professor is back after such a great performance, setting up this entire marathon, providing so much context and so much perspective on Minnelli and Cabin in the Sky. You're back. Are you going to do the same this time? Yes. It's not not a bonus appearance. It's really more of a – it's really just more an extra credit seminar. The professor brought a textbook this time. He did. I'm a little worried. He I did. Michael He's got has brought he did. I love, I love the, the And I love the professor handle. I mean, I have a, I have a BA from a Midwestern <laughs> state school, you know, and, and, and none. And just a, go with it. Yeah, I minored in Manelli, though. You know, if I don't make the professor comment, then I'll just have to refer to you as Jeff Goldblum, and you don't want that. <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. okay. We will move on. And. We are going to get to some fun Minnelli talk, hopefully, here in a moment. First, we want to remind you that this Minnelli Marathon is presented by our friends at Mubi. An algorithm has no business choosing your films. That's why we have Michael Phillips, and that's why we have Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe each day. They introduce a new gem, and you have one month to watch it. So whether it's a timeless classic, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece, each film is hand-selected by experts. Plus, you can delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays and critical reviews on Mubi's notebook. And Josh, right now, Mubi has going on a new series, Acting Like a Child, which highlights tremendous acting by tremendously talented children. Meet me in St. Louis. Little Tootie's got to be in here, right? I would hope Margaret so. The all-time Margaret O'Brien, O'Brien kind of steals the movie, but she's not listed right now okay. among movies highlights. Here are a couple that will be there. The Fallen Idol. This is from 1948, so same era about elegantly balancing suspense and farce. The film tells the tale of a fraught relationship between a boy and the beloved butler he suspects of murder. It's a great mystery film, Mubi says, that gets due praise for director Carol Reed. But it's young actor Bobby Henry whose curiosity, yearning for love, and preternatural sensitivity makes it a classic. Then Mubi jumps ahead to 1996 with Ponette. This is an extremely captivating movie about a little girl coping with her mother's death. She withdraws from all the people around her, waiting for her mother to come back. Movie says that young actress Victoire Tivisol is captured somewhere between character and child fiction and reality, creating a sense of cinematic inner life, both touching and extraordinary. If you want to check out those performances and those films and more right now over at Movie, our listeners can get a free 30 day trial by going to MUBI.com slash film spotting. That's MUBI.com slash film spotting. Michael, I think before we really get into the conversation here, why don't we hear a little bit? Of the bandwagon, yes. and fair to say the signature song from the bandwagon. Which one? That's entertainment. Well, it's it's the most famous. It's hardly my favorite number, but yes, it's probably the most okay. famous. Well, Sam, he's a pedestrian producer, and he picked the cliche tune. So let's hear it. That's entertainment. The plot can be hot, simply teeming with sex. 
A gay divorcee who is after her ex It could be Oedipus Rex Where a chap kills his father And causes a lot of bother The clerk who is thrown out of work By the boss who was thrown for a loss By the skirt who is doing him dirt The world is a stage The stage is a world of entertainment the great Fred Astaire with Nanette Fabre, Oscar Levant, and Jack Buchanan in Vincent Minnelli's The Bandwagon from 1953. The third musical in our Minnelli marathon so far, the fourth film. We did talk about The Bad and the Beautiful last week on the show. Prior to that, we opened with Cabin in the Sky and then Meet Me in St. Louis. So, Michael, offer some insight, get us going here a little bit, and just tell us some of the background on the bandwagon. Yeah. So, what kind of movie is it, really? And you know that that's 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 the question we should start with. I think it's not the kind of musical that announces any kind of um, importance or self-importance or aspirations to reinventing the form. That's I think that's the, the way to get into this one. It's a real. It's probably the most unassuming and casual seeming of all my favorite musicals. And I think you can you can say that the the two musicals that Minnelli directed that won the Best Picture Oscar, American in Paris in '51, and Gigi seven years later in '58, that's the kind of stuff that would win an Oscar, and the Bandwagon would never win an Oscar, and neither would you know what neither would a non-Minnelli musical like Singing in the Rain that, that hardly got any nominations. So the Bandwagon for me fits in a category like Singing in the Rain, and that they're both songbook musicals based on the work of of one songwriting team through the years. Uh, in this case, Arthur Schwartz and Howard Dietz. And they wrote all kinds of shows for Broadway back in the 20s and 30s. Fred Astaire, in fact, starred in The Bandwagon back in 31 on Broadway. Hardly had a plot, but had a lot of great specialty numbers. And that's how this movie works, even though it's a really sharp script, I think, by... Betty Comden and Adolph Green coming right off Singing in the Rain. This is a showbiz musical like Singing in the Rain that took on the early talkie era in Hollywood. This is Broadway in the early 1950s. And so you have a you have a very sharp script, I think, by these two, you know, very witty writers. And in fact, a lot of people just flat out state that of the two original musicals written directly for the screen, those two scripts probably are the ones that hold up the best today, I think. Singing in the Rain, a much more raucous and really exuberant, kinetic, classic, and the, the bandwagon, much more casual, low-key, and you know, a little more sophisticated, I suppose, in that a lot of the satire is, is t- making fun of theatrical personalities like Orson Welles, the egomaniacal director. They're kind of spoofing with this character played by Jack Buchanan, who's the, the big star of Broadway. Who, Jeff Cordova. Jeff, Jeffrey Cordova, who's you know, starring in, uh, in a production of Oedipus Rex. He's also directed. And he's the guy that the Comden and Green stand-ins, uh, Lily and Lester Martin, played by Oscar Levant and Nanette Fabre, he's the guy who's going to improbably direct this unpretentious little musical comedy about a children's book author who on the side for money is writing these lurid Mickey Spillane, you know, mysteries, right? So it's, you know, it's, it's a decent comic setup and, 
And as Nanette Fabre says in the movie, she says, "Well, it's it's just a it's just barely an excuse for a lot of gay and varied numbers, right?" Uh-huh. <laughs> and then then you have then you have Mr. Theater winking Jeff- at all of us. Yes, yeah, uh, Mr. Mr. Theater Jeffrey Cordova says, "Yes, well, but there's meaning and stature in this idea," and then he inflates it, and it becomes this pretentious mess that has to be saved by the good old fashioned song and dance wiles of Fred Astaire playing a thinly disguised version of himself, mm-hmm. Tony Hunter, and that I think is a real interesting characteristic of the bandwagon. You have a lot of very revealing self-portraits going on in this movie. You have Fred Astaire playing a a washed-up Hollywood song and dance man. And and at this point, Astaire was not washed up, but he was coming off a lot of of not successes, a Mm -hmm. lot of like full-on flops and a couple of near misses. And, And he had flirted with retirement already once before 1953, and so you have you have you have a kind of a melancholy, funny, but but also kind of kind of needling portrait yeah. of a stare. It opens uh, with his top hat. Yeah, right. Exa- yeah, uh, yeah. On, like from the movie. And, top and hat. nobody. Yes, in fact, and nobody at the auction where they're bidding off his his precious you know artifacts is even what they don't even care about the top. <laughs> Not hat. Not even a quarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the first number in the bandwagon, which I think is just lovely. It's just a one minute. One take, one shot scene where Astaire sings a lovely song called uh, By Myself. Mm-hmm. I'll go my way by myself Like walking under a cloud I'll go my way by myself All alone in a crowd It's just him kind of you know, coming to coming to grips with okay, I'm I've left Hollywood. I've taken the train to New York to go check out to see what the show that my friends have written for me. And you know, is it should I should I make my little foray back to Broadway and try to get my mojo going again? Right, that's the premise. So you have you have self portraits going on with the stare playing himself. You have uh, Comden and Green writing the roles of Comden and Green played by these two you know really wonderful I think I think performers Levant and Annette Fabre. You have Jack Buchanan, a terrific British song and dance man who people didn't know in America. Nobody knows this guy today, right? But you know near the end of his life, Jack Buchanan took this role on and and he was he's wonderful in it. You know, it's a wonderful role and very funny. And the most glaring self-portrait of all in his film is Vince Minnelli. Uh, clearly is the same kind of obsessive as Jeffrey Cordova. You know, Minnelli as a director was such a sucker for the kind of theatrical excess that Cordova is when he's dealing mm. with uh, just trying to how to stage and, you know, like overblow a, like a dream ballet sequence. And my God, there's stuff in the bandwagon where he is completely sending up his own work in Yolanda and the Thief and in the uh, the Gene Kelly film, The Pirate. And it's and there's a line where Cordova asks his general manager after this disastrously, you know, explosive, literally explosive sequence that falls apart. I says, uh, it seems to be a bit much, isn't it? He says, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Minnelli's talking to himself there, you know, and, and um, the whole film has kind of a self-referential quality. But I think if it was only in jokes and, you know, kind of like self-portraiture, I don't think anyone would have the affection for the bandwagon today that I do. Not everybody does. I don't know about you guys. Uh huh. I don't know about you <laughs> I guys. think we're going to get to that. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. And maybe the best way to start is the way we've started all of these marathon discussions so far, which is actually hearing from a very bright listener who is enjoying participating in these marathons, not just through 
watching the films and thinking about them, but through sending us voicemails that have been helping to get our discussions going. So once again, we are going to hear from Nathaniel in South Bend, who echoes your thoughts on By Myself, Michael. If I'm being honest, I'm not sure I enjoyed the bandwagon as much as the other musicals we've seen so far, nor certainly as much as what is surely its spiritual cousin, Singing in the Rain. But I will say I think it's a superior film to another Minnelli musical, that of American in Paris, which I was inspired to rewatch this past week, and which, apart from a few set pieces, I would say is the weakest of the Minnelli musicals that I've seen at least. Like with Meet Me in St. Louis, I found myself more interested this week in some of the quieter moments of this film, which for me really helped draw out both the grace of Minnelli's camera work as well as of the film's various performances, most notably Fred Astaire's. There are moments when Astaire can be a little hammy, but I love, for instance, early in the film when he gently breaks into the song by myself and the camera simply tracks his movement as he walks off the train platform. In this moment, Minnelli's camera isn't unnecessarily showy. Rather, it glides as Astaire does through the space. This kind of graceful intertwining between camera and dancer occurs even more impressively later in the film when Astaire and Sid Charisse dance together in Central Park. This song, an orchestral version of Dancing in the Dark, is shot in essentially three long takes, each of which only helps to emphasize the dancer's movement in and through that park space. The camera is completely unobtrusive and totally in service to the movement of the actors. It's in step with them, as much as, importantly in terms of the narrative, they are in step with each other. The other thing this movie does that I'm a sucker for is when performances that are at first set in theatrical spaces break out of those spaces, such that they can only be captured through the medium of film. Perhaps the greatest example of this is the expressionistic ballet in Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes, but I'll admit that the girl hunt ballet at the end of the bandwagon is pretty impressive in its own right, and captures that expressionistic feel in mode, if not in specific design. I'll leave off then with a question for you guys. What are the chances that when Michael Phillips returns at the end of this marathon, you three can stage a special video massacre theater in which you act out the triplets number from this film? I'll take your answer off the air. Thanks, guys. We do everything alike. We look alike. We dress alike. We walk alike. We talk alike. And one is more. We hate each other very much. We hate our folks. We're sick of jokes on what an artist is to tell us apart. If one of us gets the measles, another one gets the measles, then all of us gets the measles and mumps and croup. How I wish I had a gun, a widow gun. It would be fun to shoot the other two and be only one. I hate that number. Oh, good gracious. It's no. terrible. I really don't like it. I was hoping we could just not talk about it. Triplets. <laughs> I had just, buried it yeah, deep in my subconscious. I know. And a it lot really of people is. think it's hilarious, but uh, you know, it's hardly the reason I love the bandwagon. Well, There's a million other reasons. <laughs> this is the fourth time, as I said, that we have heard from Nathaniel. This is the fourth time that he and I are completely in step with each other. I'm going to say he is probably younger than me. He sounds a little more spry than me. So I'll be the Fred Astaire to his Sid Charisse. We're completely in step on the bandwagon, except for maybe one line, which is the line where he said that he thinks it's maybe superior to an American in Paris. Hmm. I'm not willing to go there. But, Michael, I'd love to hear from you first in response to Nathaniel. I have enjoyed Nathaniel's comments. uh, Very good, very good analysis of both Cabin in the Sky the other week and the bandwagon this week. I'd like to sort of echo that by reading a little something that Stephen Harvey wrote in his Minnelli book, which is to me the, the, the text on Minnelli. 
He says, like the best Minnelli musicals that preceded it, the bandwagon matches lyricism with high spirits, elegant surfaces, and an undertow of sadness. The bandwagon is a triumphant summation of the musical genre rather than a sly subversion of it. And he goes on to say, it's a characteristic Manelli paradox that his most, quote, realistic musical was conceived and shot entirely on the sound stages of MGM. And apart from a few second unit shots of the 20th Century Limited, Sunshine never penetrates a frame of this movie, not even the arc light variety. The Central Park trees Astaire and Charisse marvel at while playing hooky from rehearsals. This is the Dancing in the Dark number we mm-hmm. talked about. Is a two-dimensional trick of back projection, less tangible than an asbestos stage curtain. The only difference between the skyscraper cyclorama looming over their outdoor duet to Dancing in the Dark and the alleyway backdrop that sets the scene for the Girl Hunt Ballet is that the latter is more candidly Phony. Now, one more thing. Mm-hmm. He says the movie, this movie in a bell jar style, is never claustrophobic because Manelli creates a, com- a completely self-sufficient world within its strictures. Its hermetic quality gives flesh to the basic premise of all backstage musicals that these people are most alive when they're shut up somewhere performing. Manelli celebrated this idea in The Bad and the Beautiful, which the bandwagon resembles more profoundly than it does the other musicals. And that's ah. a very interesting point, I think. Yeah. You know, the fact that this is really just this you know, completely hermetic world. And in fact, the Comden and Green line they give to Jeffrey Cordova is that this is our private world, which ended up being an entire song in a Comden and Green musical mm-hmm. that came later on the 20th century. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a movie, I think, that isn't afraid to shut people out. Frankly, it's just kind of it, it just is its own thing. And it's its own series of barely connected musical numbers. You mm-hmm. know? But, and I think the one factual glitch in Nathaniel's analysis is that there's only the, the Girl Hunt Ballet that explodes this idea of, OK, we're looking at a number on a stage. I mean, that's the premise of the Girl Hunt. But of course, two minutes into the Girl Hunt Ballet, which is, you know, the, right. the, you know, a big climax with many, many, many vignettes. It's completely cinematic. Yes. You know, yeah. Everything else is really shot and experienced by the viewer as, okay, this is just sort of a, a really uh, deluxe, dreamy version of watching, let's say, Fred Astaire and Jack Buchanan do a soft shoe duet to, I guess I'll have to change my plan. It's all done just on one, you know, it's, they're mm. performing on a stage and that's how we watch it. But Manelli's camera work and, and, the, and, and my God, this is the most beautiful design work I think of any MGM musical. Um, Oliver Smith's scenic design, everything is just—it's—it's it's just such a swank series of little deluxe turns. And I love, for example, just the the absolutely unassuming artistry you get in—I uh, guess I'll have to change my plan. Where you have this set that is just this series of Paul Clay inspired horizontal colored stripes that then just sort of glide into the floor. So it's all this—it really does feel like you're in this weird little bell jar mm-hmm. with, with the, the two greatest soft shoe guys in the world, right? The minute, the number is a minute and a half long. It's no big deal. It's, it's, they're not even doing difficult choreography. These are men not young. You know, this is yeah. Astaire's 54, I think, when he made this. Buchanan's several years older, not that many years before he died. They're not b- doing choreography that is designed really to wow you. It's really more to reassure you and remind you of, of how great they are, just simply doing simple things. Before I knew where I was at I found myself up on the shelf And that was that I tried to reach the moon But when I got there 
All that I could get was the air. My feet are back upon the ground. Michael reading that part from Harvey about the connection to the bad and the beautiful is one I didn't make at all watching it, but now I am flashing back to our conversation, and especially what we said last week about the end of that film and the notion that all of these characters are really only happy when they're caught up in, no matter how melancholy their lives might be or troubled they might be, when they're caught up in a story, they're fulfilled, they are happy, and even at the end, after all they've gone through... They find themselves listening to that phone call and listening to what Shields has to say. And that is echoed here by the characters we see on the stage. And maybe for me, watching the bandwagon just coming off of The Bad and the Beautiful worked against it a yeah, little bit. I wonder, because I wonder about that. as much as I agree with almost everything that's been said in terms of the highlight numbers, absolutely dancing in the dark mm-hmm. is maybe my favorite. I, I love the, as Nathaniel described, the there's three sections to that number. They're just strolling together. Then they move into this mirror routine that's feeling each other out. And then they go fully in sync and give a larger routine and Minnelli's camera backs up to give them that space. It's just gorgeous. But, you know, I didn't find that it had any bite particularly compared to The Bad and the Beautiful. We talked in our review, Adam, about how we were a bit surprised at the bitterness that that movie made room for when it came to the (laughs) showbiz experience. And again, I'm sure there's elements to that. I think in Astaire's performance, being it towards the end of his career, it's it's more affectionate. You can sense that, but but it's still affectionate. Like it's nothing like. But I don't don't see that as a negative. I just think you're looking for something that isn't there. This is where I'm wondering if it it does you know pale a little bit for me just because I was fresh off the Bad and the Beautiful. But the movie that kept coming to mind for me, and it has been brought up a number of times already, is an American in Paris. And what I realized is that this is clearly more my issue than Manelli's. I don't know if I appreciate manic Manelli. It's interesting, Michael, that you described the bandwagon as having theatrical excess, yes, but also low-key. And aside from maybe that opening number with the stare and aside from Dancing in the Dark in Central Park, this is what the phrase Harvey used that you just read, high spirits. Those spirits are like shot into the stratosphere Mm -hmm. on this movie. And similarly, that's how I experienced an American in Paris to a degree that the aesthetic and thematic insistence of both is almost overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I I found myself at times to be backing away from the screen. The the characters are constantly shouting at each other. That's just a a minor detail. But the movie is at that pitch. And both films also work their way to this grand climactic number that, again, will be the piece de resistance if you're on board with it. Or it'll be where you're just waiting for it to end. Now, I can't say that was my exact experience because there's a moment, and we'll get to it, in The Girl Hunt, which for me absolutely redeems that whole extended sequence. Now, I know not that it oh, needs redeeming for you, I, yeah, but, there, but there's yeah. also a moment that I think distinguishes why the rest of it doesn't work for me. And mm. maybe we'll return to that because basically I'm not sure that the film noir conceit having to serve that allows the dancers to do what they can do best, except for when Astaire and Sigeris just take the narrative back and essentially say this is going to be about what we can do in these few moments. So we'll spend more time on that sequence, Hmm. I'm sure. This is a qualified but an overall good experience. I'm not saying I disliked. I think I I think I like it a little bit better than American in Paris. I've heard a lot of people like that. Yeah, Yeah, I'm a little backwards on that maybe compared to you, Adam. But um, I I want to get to more of the stuff that I did like overall too because Hmm. there is such – 
fantastic yeah. sequences in it's here. A, it's a, you know, there is um, a word that Manelli used a lot in interviews is neurotic. You know, he talks about uh, when he did Madame Bovary, which is a good film that you guys couldn't make room for in the in the marathon, but it's a it's a really interesting adaptation of the Flaubert novel and. He got the composer Miklos Rosa to write what he called a rather neurotic waltz for this moment where uh, Madame Bovary has to have her her absolute finest, highest moment in social standing in her life, and then it all has to crash in a second. And and that it needs that kind of neurotic music. And there is sort of a manic depressive quality to a lot of his work. There's no question about it. It's kind of it's kind of there in his whole visual approach to almost everything, melodrama and musical and comedy, in that. He kind of pushes it pretty far. When you see a movie like <laughs> a movie like Father of the Bride, the original with Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor and Joan Bennett, and this is this was one of Minnelli's biggest hits back in back in 1950. Uh, you know, there's a nightmare sequence there where uh, um, George Banks, played by Spencer Tracy, is having these sort of you know sweats about, oh my God, the wedding is coming, the wedding, and the nightmare scene is more frightening than anything in Psycho, <laughs> and it's 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 done. In a really heightened, kind of scary, florid way, and it and it absolutely uh, freaked me out when I saw it, even you know the first time. And it, it's designed to do that, but then there's a moment where he wakes up and you realize, oh, it's funny, you know. But that's there's a lot of that energy going on. You get an if you have an actor like Oscar Levant who <laughs> you know showed up in a lot of the MGM musicals, he was sort of a good luck charm for Arthur Freed, the producer. You know, he's got a big part in American in Paris, and because he was a you know, an acclaimed concert pianist. It makes sense that he's playing a concert pianist and a composer in American in Paris. And here he's really just more like you have to kind of live or die with his brand of really morose, neurotic comedy. Now, that seems very odd to people today, I think. Just like the performance pitch of yeah. almost everybody in this thing, mm-hmm. it might seem a little alienating. Yeah. But I think, you know, again, yeah. I think it's, you're talking about the times it was, and you're talking about theatrical personalities. I also think you're looking at very subtle work from people like, Jack Buchanan, and I think my favorite moment of pure acting from Fred Astaire in The Bandwagon is that scene between he and Levant where they're on the train, and Levant is kind of needling him and trying to get him to admit that he's in love with his co-star, right, Sid Charisse. And Astaire's putting up this big false front, and then he just a moment where he just sort of like, you know, he can't do it anymore. He says, I, I'm very much in love with this girl, and I don't know what to do about it. Hmm. And, and to me, that's a moment of... You know, uh, of weirdly authentic romantic feeling in in the middle of these fun and games, and, and that's why the movie sticks with me. And it's also one of the moments where they're actually talking to each other. I think at conversation level, Levant, I have meant, <laughs> me, I yeah. have my own issues with. He doesn't quite work for me. And is it fair to say, Michael, that this this manic uh, quality you're talking about, its theme song is that's entertainment? I yeah, mean, I, I just not I my favorite, like not my favorite number. There, I feel like I've been berated by that number on awards shows over the years and maybe that has also worked against it you right, know that right. that's how i came to know it first but when they're all together grinning at you marching towards you it was like a horror sequence to me it is. it's like we're we are going to entertain you or kill you and <laughs> you you better take it well this was three years after there's no business like show business was on screen <laughs> with the mgm musical version of and you get your gun so that there was a lot of uh um you know, t- take it, like it or lump it in terms of like show business and the fun of it. But I also think the set of the, when you actually listen to the lyrics and that's entertainment, they're hilarious. I mean, there's, you know, there's, yeah, there's self awareness, Hamlet, there exactly. Oedipus Rex. Yes, I, I love for them sure. all. But um, yeah, the, the, I mean, why the, the numbers I come back to, that's another story. And we can talk about that too. Sure. Yeah. I, I guess my 
proof that I'm the wrong audience for this movie is I would rather see Cordova's Faust debacle. I think I'd rather see the self-important, nice. totally pretentious nice. performance that that would have been. Wait, where did you grow up? This. Where did you grow yeah, up? Yeah, middle of Iowa. Yeah. Unsophisticated. Just so you don't, you've never seen we had the that mu- kind of thing We had before. the music man, the height of, <laughs> hey, the height a, of sophistication. Hey, that's a great musical. It is, yeah, actually, right? Musical, yeah. But you mentioned that scene, and it's one I wasn't even going to bring up. I think that the one between Levant and Astaire on the train is one where Astaire's doing something pretty authentic. And you're right, Josh, that Levant is at a lower pitch than he is throughout most of the film. But it's still so high to me that it undercuts any real authenticity that should be coming through in that moment. I I really struggled with every every scene where he was on screen, but especially Jack Buchanan as Cordova. Not not really a single moment of his work for me watching this film. Yeah. What? Okay. I think I whoa, think whoa, whoa, when whoa, whoa, he's whoa. spoofing, when he's doing the Wells thing and hold on, I'm not done. I'm, not, hold on, hold on, hold on, I'm <laughs> going to defend that. I just have one more. I'm with, whoa! <laughs> I'm with Adam when it comes to him having to make that switch to becoming the charming vaudeville yeah. performer. Huh. I, I stay the the spoof, the figure of to be spoofed. Yeah, and you know, let Astaire and Sid Charisse do some of the dancing. Yeah, I know. I'm with you on that. And, and I mean, look, there's no question that Dancing in the Dark is. One of those sequences that does work for people who even you know don't appreciate the finer things in the movie. That's I'm raising fine. my hand. I know yes. you guys are. I'm raising them for you. Uh, that was simple enough for great. us to get, is what you're, no, you're and saying. I, and actually, when you when you really watch that, how that number is set up, where it really just comes naturally out of this you know premise that you have. Uh, That's it. You it's have, it's, yeah, a, it's yeah. tied can, to the narrative. Can I, so can I talk about it? Because otherwise, okay. all I've got is go negativity ahead, here, Michael. Right, go, so go, I mean, go. you know, and, and Nathaniel actually yeah. stole a lot of my thunder. But that really is the sequence where finally there is some quiet there and and it allowed me to focus on what was actually happening between these two characters and what the camera was doing and simply their movement and i love the fact that it starts with them it's like minelli forces these two people that whole sequence is about them forcing themselves to get to know each other so that they can develop some kind of chemistry right because you have and, just for people who haven't seen it you have yeah. this, you have this highbrow ballerina who's been sort of dragooned into performing into this sort of like middlebrow broadway musical comedy and she does not sure if she's going to make any sense choreographically up against this old broadway hoofer song and dance man played by a stare so yeah, yeah and get, they don't they're not getting along and they're not performing well and so they go out on the town and then they end up in central park and they get out of the carriage and Manelli actually forces them to walk through a dance. The whole thing is a throng of young lovers. Right. Tavern on the green. Yeah. And, yep. and they're and they're dancing and he makes them walk directly through the middle of them, which you could say on one hand is heightening the romance and it's setting up the idea that love might bloom between them. I feel like it's almost a, a stunt that that forces them to confront the fact that they don't have that. And, and it 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 heightens the intensity of their disconnection, for mm-hmm. lack of a better sure. word. And so he forces them to go through that and they come out the other side. And as we've heard, I think Nathaniel or maybe you, Josh said, they come out the other side and, and they're just sort of feeling each other out by moving separately from each other. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, in an instant, they're completely in sync. They and that, that's where I finally clicked with this movie. And there are only a couple cuts, those long takes, the camera gliding along. It's moving so elegantly with them. And then how about Astaire's entrance into the carriage at the end and just the grace and the elegance of that when he finally gets in. And I love the fact that as soon as he gets into that seat, before he's even fully sat down, the carriage actually starts moving right on the cut. So it just adds to this sense of 
constant fluidity, constant movement, and the way that they feel their way into the scene is the same way they kind of feel their way out of the scene yep, as they yep, sit yep. down. There's a, a casualness to it that is really breathtaking. The, techni- the visual technique of that, of that sequence is so sophisticated and so subtle, and it really is, once they start dancing, it really is just three long takes, mm-hmm. about, th- about a minute apiece. And then a lot of it is just movement you don't even notice. And I think it's in a much different mood. One of my other favorite numbers in the picture, uh, Shine on Your Shoes, comes early. And you have this very long scene-setting thing where Astaire is back on Broadway for the first time. He's walking around Times Square. He doesn't really like the changes he's seeing. It's all kind of been kind of like honky-tonked up and roughed up. And he's just sort of walking through the the arcade and then suddenly, you know, he comes upon the, the shoeshine guy, Leroy Daniels, and the number begins, right? But the the minute, minute and a half of just scene setting of the extras milling through, mm-hmm. and, I mean, Manoli was such a genius choreographing, you know, <laughs> about 100, 100 extras. You actually notice and sort of think, oh, okay, they look like real tourists, but they're all different kinds of tourists or locals or whatever. And then the number starts, and you're really just talking about, again, three or four shots across three minutes. And... This is not dazzling choreography. It's not. It's not a stare doing the stuff that made him a legend mm-hmm. in terms of the you know the, the technical virtuosity. It's really more about you know. It's really more a dancer as actor and the choreographer Michael Kidd. This was his first movie assignment, but he was a huge deal on Broadway. It had a huge success with Guys and Dolls, and a lot of the choreography takes you back to that kind of you know kind of street yeah. level New York uh, thing, and, and that's why I think Girl Hunt, Josh. For you and for a lot of people, mm-hmm. it really does you know that's where things kind of come alive choreographically because it's like oh it's it's the idea that Michael Kidd can can you know tune into now it, does the stare really make sense as Mike Hammer? No, not at all. Gene Kelly would have made more sense, but let me let me just read you what Stephen Harvey wrote about Sid Charisse because she makes a hell of a lot of sense in that milieu. She's he says as for Charisse, the underworld became her like nobody else. Her dance cameo as the gun mall dominatrix who kicked Gene Kelly's heart around in the Broadway melody sequence from Singing in the Rain, transformed Sharice from just another fine dancer to the movie's ultimate seductive split personality. And when required to stand still and recite lines, Sharice is refined to the point of rigor mortis. <laughs> but pour her into a red-spangled gown designed to expose Hollywood's longest and strongest gams, and she's the most hypnotic embodiment of wicked sex this side of James N. Kane. Okay, hmm. and I love that description. And and Sharice really does understand what's going on with that kind of cool school, you know, really jazzy, almost a little bit of bebop, almost milieu, more than a stare does. But I don't know. I There's so many separate, gorgeous, wonderful things going on visually in the Girl Hunt Ballet, just from the slide she does on the subway platform to kind of clutch his leg. It's like a 20-foot run and slide across the floor to, you know, this this sort of trot up the fire escape that Astaire does at one point to my favorite thing in movie history practically is the entrance to the Dembones Cafe, which is just, uh, you know, nobody, I've said this before, nobody can film people dancing into a nightclub like Vincent Minnelli. I mean, it's just right back to Jim Henry's Paradise in his first musical, Cabin in the Sky. Josh, you mentioned An American in Paris being the one you were thinking about, and it's been referenced here multiple times. I, of course, couldn't shake Singing in the Rain the entire time I was watching this, and that's even without being aware 
I'm an idiot and wasn't aware until after I watched this movie, Michael, that it was from the exact same writing team. Same writers. Wasn't even aware, wasn't thinking about the fact that it's the year after. But of course, even if you don't know that stuff, you can't overlook the fact that it's the making of a musical, just right. like Singing in the Rain, of course, is the making of a movie. You've got that older star and the young up-and-comer dynamic. And so maybe that was that was my problem, is thinking about how much I adore that film. And the story, as much as it is here, simply isn't as good. It's certainly not a narrative on the same level. This is a review. This right. is a review where let, let's find that excuse, as you said, Michael, to have these numbers. So the story's not as good. The problem is then the songs and for me, some of the performances aren't as good. I think that's where I really struggle with the bandwagon is going back to the songs. Dancing in the Dark as a song, as as background to their dancing, it's wonderful. Shine on My Shoes is great. I actually like the music and I like the choreography there. That's entertainment if you haven't felt bludgeoned to death by it by now is okay. Everything else is sort of forgettable. Oh, I've, a I lot guess, of stuff I is forgettable. I guess I'll have to change my plan. I mean, okay, that's no, a, that's you're right. a it's beautiful fine. song. It's fine, but then you also have all-out clunkers, just terrible watches like Triplets, which was mentioned earlier, and... Let's not talk about it. Louisiana Hay. Louisiana Hay Ride. It's yeah. bad. It's a rough ride. Start something Louisiana Hay Ride. No fooling, we all is happy. Get going, Louisiana Hay Ride. No, no use for calling the road. Jasmine Washington. I's here. The Wheat P. Oglethorpe. I am here. Yeah, it's bad. You know, and, and, it's too bad. It's too bad that Louisiana Hayride is not uh, a little better a song. Yeah. Because uh, it is Nanette Fabre's one big moment in this in this movie. And she was a great Broadway talent, a, a soubrette, as they used to call them. You know, sort of the you know the vivacious second lady, right? The second leading lady. Uh, but she was a Tony winner and, a, you know, had done High Button Shoes on Broadway, a lot of hits. And then she got one shot at the movie's... Uh, in sort of the MGM musical heyday, this was it. And I think she's actually kind of great in the movie. And she's actually kind of great in that number. It's just that the number the number's is dorky. so bad. It's dorky. Yeah, it really is. It's and, dorky. I don't think it's bad. It's just okay. dorky. <laughs> well, it's definitely dorky. But I did want to bring up two other things real quick here. One of them being, as we're talking about Singing in the Rain, the idea that that film was reckoning with this uneasy transition in Hollywood modernity and the onset of sound and how was the old regime going to deal with that. And this film also in its own way deals with that transition, though a very separate kind of transition. I guess right. I kind of want to ask what you perceive it to be, Michael, because we do have those moments where he, he's now the older actor, maybe a little bit off his game, not the star he was. And when he even goes back to New York, that whole shine on your shoes number starts with him walking around 42nd Street going, what happened to 42nd Street? Does that theater still exist anymore? No, it's a hot dog stand now. And there's another really good line where at the end when they've had their big performance and he's saying, don't people come backstage anymore? And they're like, no, that's old fashioned. That that doesn't that doesn't happen. And so Minnelli on, on one level seems to be trying to wrestle with that idea that that form of entertainment, the the theater is maybe gone and he is trying to revive it or bring it back in everyone's collective conscious. At the same time, the thing you said, Michael, about Cordova being a reflection of Minnelli himself really struck me because we do have that number where Faust completely comes unhinged, where he's trying to pull off too much spectacle, right. too much movement, right. too much scenery. And we've kind of seen Minnelli, the director, pull that off in other sequences and especially in Girl Hunt, but Cordova completely fails. But I think Girl Hunt is the answer in a way to that where I almost want to read it as if Minnelli's saying the spectacle that I, through Cordova, am trying to pull off or would like to pull off 
on the stage, it's impossible. But I can do it cinematically. Right, right. Right? It's, it's like uh, yeah, that, it's, that's yeah, the medium that, that it, allows yeah. him to take everything he's imagining in his head in something like Girl Hunt and bring that entire scene together. But he can only do it with the camera yeah. and forcing our perspective and the, the set design and moving through time and space, which – Theater doesn't allow you to do at least in not the same quite, way. And, but but it's it's interesting that most of the numbers and most of the ones I just love in in the bandwagon really are more theatrical than cinematic. But yet, Manelli's enough of enough of an instinctive genius, I think, with when and how to move the camera that you don't you don't ever feel like okay, now we're just sitting still for another stagey number. I just don't feel that with this mm-hmm. film uh, or his technique. Anyway, I would say this, like with, uh, you know, I really do consider Manelli a great American director. With most great American directors, there's a very thin, fine line between work that, uh, adventurous work that succeeds and adventurous work that completely fails. <laughs> I mean, I think Wells was certainly like that, uh, but Manelli maybe more obviously because, you know, he loved a certain amount of extravagance visually. Mm-hmm. And, and when you get a movie like Yolanda and the Thief or The Pirate, where the dream ballet sequences are just a little too nuts for words, and they're a little like who cares, and uh, you, you start losing the performers inside the scenery. Um, Manelli knew he had these problems he had to be careful of, and a couple of flops into his career, uh, he was certainly ready for a script like Comden and Green's for the bandwagon that made fun of that kind of artistic tendency hmm. and and yeah, I think he had a sense of humor about it in regard to singing in the rain Adam that's the question I want to ask myself the next time I watch that film which I will do because it's one of my favorites too is why why does the that's entertainment spirit that is absolutely there what is different about mm-hmm. it for me in singing in the rain than what I've experienced in the bad wagon or even an American in Paris and I want I'm glad you mentioned a shine on your shoes Michael because that might be my second favorite number yeah I love it and love there's it. Mm-hmm. it's probably because there's a spontaneity to it there's um, just kind of an, an enthusiasm that feels more organic and natural than in some of the other numbers and Leroy Daniels I, I know Benelli was so meticulous I'm sure it didn't work out this way, but I almost like to think that moment where Daniels starts shuffling around the shoe shine stand he did that on purpose to extend his own cameo. Where well, he was uh, like, I'm only getting yeah. this one scene. And it, and it works for the moment because Esther has to respond to how Daniels is performing in that scene too because he doesn't expect him to start performing right. in character, right? Yeah. The character doesn't expect that and well, then it turns into it, this think, lovely duet. Yeah, I think it's part of what the choreographer set up. You sure, know, absolutely. Kidd, yeah. But it doesn't feel that way. No, there's no, a, no. There's this just, just kind of it rises out of the moment yeah, spontaneity. I agree. Which, right. which goes back to the dancing in the dark. Too. Yeah, the same kind yeah, of spontaneity yeah, exactly. feels that exactly. Way. Yeah, and, that, and that's a very different payoff than just seeing, um, you know, whether you like it or not. You know, whether seeing a completely self-contained theatrical number, like I guess, off to change my plan, whether you like it or not, that's one success or one sort of uh, goal to do that properly. And then this other one is really much more cinematic about how are we going to integrate this number. And sort of make it kind of walk easily out of story and then into song and dance and back in. I think every time you stack this film up against the obvious precursor, which is Singing in the Rain, not a Minnelli film, but that was directed by Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly. But 
that film is Singing in the Rain Will Always Win. I adore that film more than any other musical. And it's so atomic in its energy, you know. Mm. It is so dance-driven and kinetic. And to see Kelly and Donald O'Connor just do, you know, Moses Supposes, that's the kind of choreography and the kind of just, oh, my God, the talent. Well, you don't really get that with the bandwagon because they're just not, they're not aiming for that degree of difficulty in the dance. They just aren't. It's a different story and it's a different age. <laughs> you know, Astaire, as I say, is in the early 50s and Buchanan was almost 60 at the time, I think. It's a diff- It's very different. Sid Charisse, on the other hand, you know, who's yeah. 23, she 24 would... years younger than Astaire, it's, you know, that's a different level of, of, of choreographic ability at that thing. And it's just, it's a different set of intentions, I think. And I think one, you know, one film is is just this crazy, wondrous ball of energy, and that is not how you describe the bandwagon. It just isn't. Well, as far as Charisse goes, too, I mean, I think this movie, except for the dance sequences, doesn't serve her. I don't know if it's entirely her fault, as as Harvey described in the non-dancing scenes, because you think about a few years later when she was paired with Astaire again in Silk Stockings. Right. Now, I think she gets, like, some actual comedy to play there, and she does quite well I think in those yeah, scenes well compared enough. to what she gets here yeah. which is really when she's not dancing right. there's nothing to this character or their she's meant romance to be, she, and she's meant to be a humorless character yeah, which, and, is no, and, which is never much fun and she's to play. meant to fall for him which you know often in an Astaire movie especially the Rogers and Astaire ones that would be the difficult thing to swallow and here it's you know probably more difficult than in any of those pairings I found it to be but really I mean it almost doesn't matter when you get to that final sequence and the Dembones Cafe. Oh, it's the best. I mean, this is the best thing two, on earth. <laughs> well, when that, okay, so here's my, here's my one quibble about that whole extended sequence, Michael, is I almost felt, and, and you've already countered this by pointing out her slide, where there are moments where the dancing comes alive, but I felt a lot of it, and I don't know how extended it is. Is it 12 minutes, 15 minutes? Oh, the girl hunt is, like it's that. more like eight, I think. Eight okay, or ten. eight minutes. So yeah. there, there's a lot going on there where I feel like the dancers are restricted by this pseudo narrative. No question about it. No question There's about a lot of like shooting of other characters and and it's almost like, okay, just keep moving. I want to see another extended sequence. We get to the cafe. Yeah. And that's what we get, particularly in that moment where Charisse takes off the jacket, is in the dress, and the two of them engage in this antagonistic, her in a stare, routine that has a brazenness and a confidence that she doesn't get to display anywhere else no, in the film. No, she's great. And, right? she, and she understands that. And this that, is when yeah. she's the brunette. So that's why, yeah. right? And she she's actually playing, makes total sense in that film noir world. She makes absolute and, sense. Yeah. And, I mean, she almost stomps all over him. It's an exhilarating number. I loved it. Yeah, and as a dancer, she's just much more of a sensual animal in in 1953 than Astaire is. You know, I mean, Kelly... Astaire ever was, Gene, really. Gene Kelly would be a different story. But, but yeah, I think it was largely because of that number uh, that the Catholic Legion of Decency gave the bandwagon uh, morally objectionable in part for all because of the exposed thighs and the <laughs> seriously it's I like believe it yeah so that uh thank you catholics but um uh yeah i but i i'd say that the girl hunt ballet is almost as it's more of a triumph of design and manelli's camera than it is choreography mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, but but somehow that doesn't wreck the enjoyment for me. I just think it's a different set of demands. And I think there's probably moments in the bandwagon when Astaire 
felt very much like his character, Tony Hunter, felt about doing this cockamamie Faust musical where he's just sort of surrounded by Manelli's ideas and all this scenery and like, oh, my God, now we got to <laughs> do another scene change. And and he's not doing the kind of choreography he was doing 10 years earlier. It just isn't. But, again, that's sort of an interesting self-reflective layer in the picture, just, just like the sort of these disguised self-portraits that are all over yeah. the bandwagon. Well, the bandwagon is the fourth film and the final musical in this marathon as we have some came running and lust for life ahead and josh do i have that order right i think we're ending next with some is came lust running. for life okay and then michael you're on and it's just a duo for that josh will be where will you be josh uh, i'm not sure exa- i will either be in iowa adam uh-huh. or in colorado one Pizza of the ranch. two places so oh yeah really? i'm gonna hunt down a pizza. I'm going to go on a pizza ranch hunt. Never mind the girl hunt. It's a pizza ranch. Yeah. Have fun with that. So you have two weeks where you're going to be gone and we're going to have a couple of guests on those shows. Michael will be in for one. The movie I know we're going to review on that episode, at least right now, is the John Krasinski, Emily Blunt thriller, A Quiet Place. Oh, yeah. And we will get to that final film and our marathon. And of course, Josh will be back. We'll get his thoughts at some point and we'll get to our Minnelli Awards. Someone wrote in already with a great suggestion for the those awards a little play on words they should be called the garlands <laughs> that's good i like that i think, I think we, we will I like that. let's do yeah, that have to go with that so if you want to follow along with this marathon check out the previous conversations and also be prepared for the upcoming ones go to filmspotting.net slash marathons that's where you will find the complete lineup don't forget later this week we'll also have the full podcast with a review of the new steven soderbergh thriller unsane and yep it's still film spotting madness we have our sweet 16 results and elite eight matchups for our best of the 90s tourney and i know michael you're pretty active on twitter what's your handle there so listeners can find God, you? i haven't tweeted for almost an hour i know it's you know, actually, actually like i'm known as being compl- i am known by most people on twitter as being completely inactive on twitter but oh. phillips tribune I like to tweet when I really have something to say. Guys. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Make it count. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, as always, to Golden Joe Dassault, of course, and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant for the last week, I understand. Yeah, his last before week. Before he moves Going on. out to L.A. He's pursuing the dream. Yeah. Young Jeremy is. Leaving us behind, Jeremy Wellhausen. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. When there's a shine on your shoes There's a melody in your heart What a wonderful way to start the day Now there's a shine that you get in the barbershop There's a shine that you get in the Pullman car Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.